Sorry, Andy. Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay, good. Um, it's a privilege to be here with you, and I, I want to say just a couple of things to uh, two groups of people. First of all, uh, I noticed there are some younger people there here, and by that I mean under 20, uh, and uh, also much younger. And it's great to see you. Uh, as a child, I loved going to church at night. Now, I have to confess this because my parents always bought us fish and chips afterwards. And I don't know how your parents have bribed you, but it's great that you're here because what we're going to say tonight is for you. And I wrote a book for teenagers, but there were some preteens who got it as well, called uh, Ask. I've written another one called Seek, and the third one's going to be called Knock. And at the end, if you've got a question, ask me it. And uh, if, if I think it's a really good question, I'll put it in Knock. And so that your question will end up in a book. But I do, I'm so delighted to see you. I think that's great. And secondly, there are some of you who are visitors. Now, I'm a visitor, so I haven't a clue who are visitors and who've been here since the bricks were first laid. But it, it's good to see people walking in to this church for many different reasons. I don't know why you are here. I know generally, having been a minister of a church up in Dundee, that people would often come into church and say afterwards, that wasn't what I expected. Now, I wasn't exactly sure what they expected, but I do remember one particular visitor, Kevin McKenna, a journalist, who came in and he wrote an astonishing piece in the Daily Mail, which was very funny about lots of different things. But one of the parts I remember him writing was saying, and then came the bit I dreaded. We were asked to turn and greet one another. So don't worry. You're not going to do that. You want to be completely anonymous. That's fine. But again, it's good that you're here, and I hope you'll feel free to speak to people uh, afterwards, because what we're going to look at today is just hugely important. Um, and also, can I just thank those of you who, there are so many people this morning especially who, who spoke to me about the podcast, and I was just amazed. I think all my podcast listeners in Scotland must come to this church. Uh, and I was just amazed that you're still speaking to me, which is lovely. Uh, but there are some further resources I want to mention for you, especially if you're a visitor. Um, I do do this podcast called Quantum of the Wee Flea. Uh, I also do something called Sunday Catechism, which, guess what, is every Sunday. And it's looking at the catechism, the, which is a teaching of the, the summary of the teaching of the Bible in question and answer form. And then... Tonight we're looking at Colossians, and every day I do a five-minute thing on uh, Colossians. Uh, it's called Coffee and Colossians. You'll find that on YouTube. You're very welcome uh, if you want to have a look at that. So let's uh, go to this question. So I, I wrote this book called Seek, and question 19 came from a teenager. Why is the Bible different from other sacred texts? What makes Christianity different from every other religion? Now, this could be difficult at one level because we could set it up and say, right, we're going to trash these religions and say our religion is the best. And, and that's not what I'm going to do. I was at the University of Edinburgh. Um, one of the co elective courses I did was comparative religion. To be honest, I found it so boring that I stopped doing it. Um, but since then, I've found comparative religion very interesting. I've read the Quran. 
some Buddhist scriptures, Hindu scriptures rather, Buddhist texts, uh, Confucius, uh, and some other things as well. You can't automatically put a group of people into it. They're the bad guys and we're the good guys. When your next door neighbors, uh, you can guess what religion when I say his name was Mohammed, um, are, are, are such lovely people. Or we, in, in Sydney, there are so many different groups. I, li I live and work in Sydney now, uh, as there are in Edinburgh, but in Sydney, they're just much larger and uh, so many Nepalese who are Hindu. They're f lovely people. Um, and you, you get to know some of the different cultures. I find uh, the Arabs just incredibly hospitable. So that causes people to go and say, well, you know, you've got your religion, that your religion's associated with your culture, and how dare someone say one religion is better than the other? And in fact, to question a religion is considered to be racist. Now, it's strange in Scotland, someone can explain this to me. Why in Scotland, if I criticize Islam, am I a racist, but if I criticize Christianity, I'm fine? That doesn't make sense to me. But my argument is that as we look at this, we're going to see something uh, that helps deal with this very key question, how can one religion be right? There are thousands of gods, which one to choose? What about all the differences within Christianity? Because there are many people who would call themselves Christian, and when I hear, I was in a church here in Edinburgh once, and I just got up and walked out. The reason was I wanted to be polite, because what I was hearing was so bad I was going to stand up and shout out. I'm still not convinced I shouldn't have done so. But what I heard wasn't Christianity. So people go, ah, yeah, 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 of course. Um, that's, that's your version of Christianity. Everyone's got a different version. In the words of Johnny Cash, Depeche Mode, and numerous others who covered this song, you've got your own personal Jesus. No, that's not what this says. I remember doing a debate with a Muslim uh, in, in, I think it was in Dundee University, and afterwards, a lady in a burqa came up and, and she said, I want to ask you some questions. And I was, I was very facetious, to be honest. I said, are you allowed to speak to me? And she said, oh, yeah. I said, is your husband here? She said, oh, yeah. She said, he's the one up the back. I said, uh, he's a bit of an idiot. So I thought I would talk to you. I thought, well, my stereotypes about Muslim submissive women in burqas were immediately blown apart. That's what happens when you talk to people. And then she said to me, David, you said you believed in a sovereign God who created everything. Do you believe in heaven and hell? And the Bible is the word of God? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, David, you are the most unusual Christian I've ever met. You're almost a Muslim. If it wasn't for Jesus, you'd be a Muslim. And I was tempted to say, thank Allah for Jesus, but I didn't go there. But, you know, just in talking, I realize sometimes we have a lot in common. There are different things. So what does make us different? Now, I would argue this, and please be very careful. There are the Christians here already whose you know, heresy hunt detectors are already on full blaze right now. Just stick with it. I would argue that all religions contain some truths. When Islam says there's one creator, absolutely. When Hinduism talks about loving your neighbor, absolutely. Buddhism as well, there are many things within it you could go, yeah, Confucianism, I was reading uh, Confucius, absolutely. 
But that doesn't mean that all religions are the same, nor does it mean that all religions point to God. In fact, the, the, the danger is that religion, including much of what's called Christianity, can take us away from God. I think in the words of the great Led Zeppelin, uh, you're all a music aficionado, so I don't need to explain who they are. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven. Religion is an attempt for humanity to go to heaven because here's an amazing fact. I'm a historian, at least I studied history at the University of Edinburgh and I did stick with that one. And I know of no single society in human history which has not been religious, where everyone is seeking for something. Now, that's what makes us very different from the animals. So, why? Why do we have that religious instinct? Because there is something within us. In, in Ecclesiastes, it talks about God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also said eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what he has done from beginning to end. There is this problem of beauty and eternity and this awareness and this sense of God. And we reach out and we, we try and sometimes we invent our own religions. But what if God reached down to us? Instead of us reaching up to God, what if he reached down to us? What if he revealed himself to us? Now that's the claim of Jesus Christ and that's the passage that we are going to turn to. We're going to look at verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1. And as we look at this, there'll be lots of connections and comparisons that you can make in your own minds between different religions. I am not going to give you a course in comparative religion and say Christianity teaches this, Islam teaches this, Hinduism teaches this, Buddhism teaches this. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you who Jesus is. And then I hope that by the end, in the words of the late, great Sinead O'Connor, you will be able to say, nothing compares to you when looking at Jesus Christ. So if you like, it's comparative religion, but it is setting up Christ and saying, okay, now go and read every other religion and see if this, how this sets up against Jesus Christ. So I'm sorry that was such a lengthy introduction, I realize already I got a, an order of service sheet that said when I was going to finish, and it's just a lie because it's not going to happen. But let's go to uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and I'm going to shoot through this fairly quickly. Do understand there's a huge depth in this. I'm not going to go to that depth, but if you want to go deeper, please do, because th these are the most extraordinary, one of, this is one of the most extraordinary things ever written. So, Verse 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What is God like? What does he look like? If he's invisible, how can we see him? And here's the problem in religion. When human beings try and make an image of God, we always get it wrong. We can't do so. Any image we make is imperfect. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus Christ. I, I will confess this. I cannot conceive in my mind of God. I, it, sometimes as a teenager, and so I'm especially speaking to the teenagers, it used to just blow my mind. Who is God? What is he like? Is this overwhelming? Some kind of monster, some, something I can't grasp or understand beyond me. And in Islam, they would say, yes, of course, Allah is unknowable. 
But Christianity makes this claim that God is knowable, and he's knowable through Jesus Christ. John 14, verse 9, Jesus says this, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you see Jesus, you see the Father. He is the perfect representation of God. That is, uh, in Hebrews 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he appointed, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Now listen to this. This is the stunning bit. Well, it's all stunning, but this is the really stunning bit. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Adam and Eve, we're told in Genesis 1, were made in the image of God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. By the way, that's hugely important. If you are a woman here, you are as much in the image of God as any of the men. If you're a child here, you're as much in the image of God as anyone else. Actually, if you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, you're as much in the image of God as everyone else. If you're a drug addict or a billionaire, you're as much in the image of God as everyone else. It is such an important teaching to grasp. We are made in the image of God, but we are not God. But Jesus Christ is the image of God. And so, the first lesson you take is simply this. If you want to know God, you need to know Jesus Christ. The second, the firstborn over all creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. Who created God? Richard Dawkins. I'm going to include atheism as a religion, by the way, because it's a religious, philosophical point of view. He thinks it's a really knockout argument to say, who made God then? But the Bible doesn't teach a created God. God is uncreated. The universe was either begun by an unintelligent mass chemical thing or by an intelligent mind. Einstein even recognized that, though he was not a Christian. And the Bible teaches that God is uncreated. So why does it say here, if Jesus is God, that he's the firstborn. Now, just let me try and explain this. The key about understanding the Bible is not to let scholars come and assess every word often out with the context. You can prove anything you want from the Bible. I remember a lady getting up and walking out of church in Livingston I was preaching in, and she was really angry, and we asked afterwards, what, why were you so angry? And she said, well, you said there is no God. No, I, I was quoting the Bible, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart there is no God. You've always got to take it in context. And uh, the late Professor Donald MacLeod explained it in this way. I thought this was great. Um, if you have the phrase, Scotland beat England at Hamden, every one of you automatically understands what that means. It's such a normal occurrence in life. <laughs> um, in my dreams, anyway. Right? That means, for those of you who do not understand, it means that Scotland beat England at a football match played at Hampden Park in Glasgow. 
That's the natural meaning. However, you could sit down and analyze every word, and sometimes this is what we have, a, I met a friend here who's studying theology at, at New College, and believe you me, sometimes theologians are this daft, that this is what they do with the Bible. There's good theologians as well, of course, but um, it's interesting. Imagine you sat down, analyzed every word, and you say, well, Scotty, Scotland refers to the Scottish hockey team, and beat could mean beat with sticks, and Hamden is actually a scribal error for Hampton Court. So what this actually means, and in a thousand years' time, someone will write a PhD on this, it would mean that the Scottish hockey team beat the English with their sticks at Hampton Court. Now, you can twist it like that if you want. But you look at the context. It's very clear. And the context here of firstborn is clear. If you wanted to go through the Bible, you will see that the idea of first, the word, the word for firstborn doesn't mean created, but it indicates a superiority. Now, again, I say this to the young people uh, that um, there's a family I was speaking to, and I think the son was the oldest. Now, all of us know that the oldest child is the most important in the whole family. Um, I was the eldest of five, you know, and I'm therefore living proof that this is the case. It, of course, it's not in our culture, and usually it's the youngest one who gets spoilt because the parents have had practice by then. But it's in this culture, the firstborn was considered the supreme one, the one who would inherit. And that's how this word is being used here. It's just very simply, if you read uh, the Psalms, um, Psalm 89, 27, for example, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So the lesson here is simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not just a prophet or king, but he's the word and the king of kings. He's the absolute supreme one. He cannot be put in a category with prophets and religious leaders and so on. It just doesn't work. Number three, the creator. Why does everything exist? For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. It's very similar to John chapter 1. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You may not believe this. The fact you don't believe it doesn't mean that it's not true. But every single person here has been created by Jesus Christ. Every single one of you owes your very existence to Jesus Christ. Everything, the smallest atom on earth and the largest galaxy in the universe, he's not just the creator of the visible world, but also the invisible world. He is the agent of creation. He is the architect, the designer, and the builder. I think the concept of intelligent design doesn't go far enough. In Jesus, the babe in the manger, is, he's a designer. The one through whom everything has been made. That's what blew my mind. And again, I say this to the, to the young people. I, at 14, I was desperately trying to be an atheist. And my only problem was it just didn't make sense because I would look at the, the cliffs up in Easter Ross at Nig, where, I, where, I was, where we lived. Just as nowadays, going through my midlife crisis, I take lots of pictures of flowers. 
but it's really because I'm just amazed at their beauty. Or where we're staying just now out at Kippen. Every morning we get up and we look out and this morning there was a mist just down in the valley. And the extraordinary beauty. I love going to an art gallery and I love going uh, to the art gallery here in Edinburgh. And great art, you just go, wow, what a great artist. But nothing compares to the art that Jesus has produced. He is the creator. So your third lesson is simply this. The cre creation tells us about the creator, but it's not the creator. That's hugely important. Too many religions are pantheistic, thinking that you are God, everything is God. I'm sorry, I don't believe a cockroach is God. I don't believe these pillars are God. And I'm really, really sorry, I don't believe you are God, nor am I. That's a tremendous burden to lay on any human being. The fourth thing, the sustainer. Look what it says there. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What keeps everything together? I was at a lecture at the University of Dundee. I uh, didn't really understand a huge amount of it because it was quantum physics and everything else. But I remember the lecturer saying that in the universe, we know that there's matter. I can't remember, it was about 15%. And then there's dark matter or antimatter. And he said, then there's, there's something, we just don't know what it is. But without it, the universe wouldn't exist. And when it came to questions, I stood up and said, look, can I read you this from the Bible? And I said, are you saying there is a principle that keeps everything together? And he said, absolutely. I said, does that make sense, what I've just read? He said, yes, I'm not a believer or anything like that. But it does make sense. Why? We, we sometimes wonder, why, why do things go wrong? Why did COVID come? But there's six billion viruses in the world. You should really be asking, why are we not all falling down dead? Why have we not been hit by, you know, a comet or something? You know, we're very worried about global warming and something, but there was a volcano went off last year uh, in the Pacific Ocean. Produced more carbon emissions than the whole of the world put together over the whole year. You know, it's extraordinary that we have life on this planet and that life sustains. It's extraordinary that the universe doesn't collapse. And the reason for that is Jesus. Life is not random. Life is not chaotic. Life is intermeshed. So think of it this way. It's like the back of a weaving which looks a mess, but when you turn it around, it's a beautiful picture. Or think of an airport. You're going into the airport like you're coming into Edinburgh Airport or Sydney Airport or whatever, and there's all these planes. Why, how don't they hit each other? Because there's an air traffic controller. In philosophy, we, this is called a principle of coherence. We're looking for a unity amid all the diversity of everything. And in the different religions, so in, in, in Buddhism, looking for the one, in Hinduism, looking for this integration. But in Christianity, Jesus is that principle. It is his power alone which holds everything together. As the passage we cited in Hebrews says, he sustains all things by his powerful word. Myself and my wife will drive back and to uh, Kippen when we're done here. Not be too long. And... We regularly do pray that God would preserve us as we travel because there's so many things that can go wrong. I got a phone call one day in Sydney and it was my wife very, very upset 
not, and not surprising, because she'd hit, been hit by a concrete mixer that nearly killed her. We had this old BMW. I know that sounds grand, but you just ask your pastor about his car. Um, <laughs> it sounds grand, but um, you see the jealousy coming in there. We had this BMW, and we're so thankful for it because it was old. It was 20 years old, but it was absolutely rock solid. Otherwise, she wouldn't be here tonight. But I'll tell you this, when you get in a car after that, when you pass the spot where you had that accident, when your husband's driving a wee bit too fast, you're feeling a wee bit edgy, it's completely understandable. Because if life was chaos, everything can, can and will go wrong. But he has got the whole world in his hands. So Jesus Christ is the preserver of all things. Number five, he's the head. Look, verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, the Lord of creation is also head of the church. The body is a unit, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Why is the church important? in terms of understanding. It's, believe you me, churches are a mess. I, I love this church. Uh, it was so encouraging being here this morning, being with you tonight. Uh, I know you're not perfect, and I know you're a mess. I know none of your leaders are perfect, because I know what the Bible says. I know about humanity. But the church is glorious, and the church is beautiful. Why? Because Jesus is the head, and he calls people from many different backgrounds, and he molds us together so that we are all diverse, all individual, but all in union with him. The church is about Jesus. Once the church stops being about Jesus and Jesus just becomes a prop, then it's dead. And by the way, I think that's why the church in Scotland has largely died, because the church forgot that Jesus was the head. Not assemblies, not priests, not bishops, not pastors, not popes, no one. Jesus is the head. He originated both the natural and the spiritual universes. He was born, he lived, and he died for the church. He was also raised from the church, which is why it says there, he's the firstborn from the dead. Those of you who are smart, and many of you are, will say, hang on a minute, what do you mean the firstborn from the dead? Because Lazarus was raised before Jesus. How's Jesus the firstborn? Go back to the supremacy. Here's the thing about Lazarus, he died again. That'd be so interesting, by the way, wouldn't it, if you were Lazarus? I mean, I would love to interview him. I'd love to have him on a podcast or something and say, hey, Lazarus, how was death a second time? Ah, no, no hassle. Been through it before. You know, <laughs> been there, got the T-shirt. You know, you could, I, I don't know. I, 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 maybe, maybe that's wrong to imagine things like that. But I think it's, I think it's just a brilliant thing. It's, There's an organic relationship that we have now because Jesus is alive and he, he feeds us. You know, sometimes there's a great Scots phrase. One of my aims in Australia is to teach Australian Scots. And the phrase I use more than any to teach them is simply this, it's better felt than tell. I'm telling you about Jesus, but when you feel, when you know, this morning and also tonight, but when we started singing this morning, I just thought, wow, 
God is in the house, if you'll excuse the expression. Well, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do we see Jesus? We see Jesus in his church. I can't, I can't show you a picture of Jesus because we don't know what he looked like. If someone walked into the church and said, I'm Jesus, I would say, forget it. You know, a friend of mine in a church up in Dundee told me they had someone came into their church. I'm sorry for telling you this story, but I've started and I'll have to finish it now. Um, and <laughs> this man who was obviously mentally unwell stood up and said, I am Jesus and you must listen to me. Now, it'd be interesting to see what happened here. If that, but there was this woman who was really sharp and she stood up and she said, I'm Mary and I'm your mother and I'm telling you to shut up and sit down. <laughs> and I, yeah. If I told you the church, you'd realize it was quite normal for that church. But no, I won't go there. Number six, Jesus, well, Jesus Christ has a body. That's the principle. His church, that's where you can meet him. That's where if you're here for the first time, come back next week and keep coming back until you meet Jesus. Number six, Jesus is the fullness of God. We're nearly there. Um, who is Jesus? It was the Father's plan to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Fullness here carries the idea of completion and the totality. It was used in classical Greek of a city being full or the complement of the ship being made up. In the Gospels, it's used of a hole being filled by a patch. In Christ, the fullness of the deity lives. He's not just specially endowed with the Holy Spirit, but he's the dwelling place of the very essence of God. For those who are theologians, you'll know a term, the hypostatic union. Don't worry if you're not. What it, it just simply means this. Jesus possessed two natures. You've got one nature. But he had the divine and the human within his single person. And the fullness of God lives in him. And when you come to know Jesus, you are in Christ. And therefore, when you are in Christ, the fullness of God lives in you. This taking up residence carries the idea of the incarnation. At Christmas, the shepherds worshipped, the angels worshipped, the wise men worshipped. Why? Not because a cute little baby was born. Not because they foresaw in 2,000 years' time people would be walking around going, hey, peace on earth. No, but because God had come to dwell in a human being. You know, how this... If you want to be full, this is the principle, and spiritually satisfied, it can only come through Christ. Nothing else will satisfy you. Every religion is like drinking salt water. You keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, and it never fills you up, even when you say, I'm full. Whereas with, with Christ, it's like this. It's like you take and you drink some water, the water of life, and you feel full, and then you look out or you come to understand there's a whole ocean. You can never stop. You, you can't have enough of Christ. You can't. Last is this. He's the reconciler. I don't have the time to deal with all this, but it's because the fullness of God dwells in Christ that he's the also, also the agent of reconciliation. And that reconciliation means to change completely. <clears throat> There's a band called The Verve who had an album called Urban Hymns, which at one time was owned by one in every 10 homes in the UK. So some of you will know what I'm talking about. And they have a wonderful song called Bittersweet Symphony, That's Life. Go listen to it. And the, the chorus of it is, 
I'm a million different people from one day to the next. I can't change, I can't change, I can't change. Our society says, be what you are. Christ says, no, 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 no. I call you to come to me and to be changed. Because we need to be. And he does this through the blood of the cross, the death and sacrifice of Christ. Man erected the barrier, Christ broke it down. He himself is our peace. And by the way, this reconciliation, Romans 8 verse 20, tells us that it's for the whole creation. You want to deal with climate change, you actually need more people to become Christians. Again, I don't have time to explain that. That's one of the questions you can ask. So, let me leave it with this. There are two paths. I'm not going to pick on any particular religion. And to be honest, I find Christianity without Christ absolutely awful. There's, um, I think it's Lewis Classic Gibbon just has some books that describe um, kind of the Aberdeenshire temperament and the Angus temperament. And it's, it's Calvinism without Christ. Now, for those of you who don't know what Calvinism is, it's a great thing to be, by the way, a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist. But let me tell you this, Calvinism without Christ has got to be the most miserable religion in the world. Uh, I, I think it probably runs close to the Taliban for being awful. But it's there. Any religion without Christ becomes a means of oppressing people in their spirits, in culturally and in other ways. And that's why for my Hindu friends and for my Muslim friends and for my Buddhist friends, I, I plead that they would come to know Christ. And for friends who say they're Christians but haven't a clue about Christ, I plead that they would come to know Christ, especially those who identify as cultural Christians. I mentioned Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. It's an extraordinary piece because some people think it is about demonic. I don't think it is. Listen to this, lines from it. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Your head is humming, and it won't go in case you don't know. The piper's calling you to join him. You've got two paths. You can choose to follow the Christ I've been speaking about, the creator, the sustainer, the one who died for sinners like you and me, the one who is the head of the church, the one who is the reconciler, the one who is the fullness of God. Or you can say, no, I'm going my way. I'm going my own way, or I'm going the way of this prophet or that prophet because it suits me better, or it's my culture. Jesus is not tied to any culture. There are far more Chinese Christians now than there are Christians in Europe. I love in, in, in Sydney just seeing people from so many different backgrounds coming to know Christ because Jesus is for all humanity. Paul, very religious man in his own way, talked about his past religion. He didn't knock it at one level. He talked about how he was zealous and how he did everything that he was supposed to do. And then he says, you know, when I look at all this religion that I had, I count it. And I can't use the phrase because it's not polite. But basically, he said, I count it dumb compared 
with the joy of knowing Christ. I uh, wrote a book called Magnificent Obsession about Jesus because I kept asking people to believe in Jesus and I realized they didn't know who he was. And uh, by the way, if you're not a Christian, I'll, I'll make a very simple offer and this is uh, this will prove to you that the age of miracles is not yet dead because I'm a Scotsman and I'm offering you something free. Uh, if you'd like a copy of the book, tell me at the door and I'll send it to you. I don't have any with me because I'm not that prepared. But um, please do let me know if you're not a Christian you want to find out more. Why did I call it Magnificent Obsession? Because I watched, and you can get it on YouTube, a video when I was about 14 of a BBC program called How to Get to Heaven in Montana. And I was intrigued because I thought, well, is Montana a particularly difficult place to get to heaven from or is it closer or whatever? And if you're from Montana, you can, you can say that. But it was a group of Am Amish Mennonites who uh, the young people in that traditional co congregation, that community, it's a very communitarian religion, they went through a crisis because the pastor, uh, for some of them, was their father. He died young. And they couldn't cope, so they rebelled in Amish terms. Now, in Amish terms, they rebelled by going to a play or, you know, or going to the cinema. And especially, they rebelled by going to hear a preacher in a revival meeting in a tent. And they became what they called born-again Christians. And the BBC program, it was Everyman, just spent a year filming the interaction between the traditional Mennonites and the new born-agains and the split within the community, though they still live together. It's a most extraordinary piece of, of, of film work. It was the BBC at its best in terms of documentary. But the young, the pastor's son, who became the pastor of the born-agains, they, um, the reporter said to him, what does Jesus mean to you? And I never forgot this. I, to me, it, this image is still in my head. He looked up, and he had, of course, he had a beard on being Amish. And, you know, he, he just looked, and his eyes absolutely filled with tears. And he said, Jesus? Jesus? He is so beautiful. He is my magnificent obsession. And I never forgot it, and that's why I wrote that book. Because we are not talking about religion. We're not talking about signing up to a set of doctrines. <clears throat> We're not talking about joining a church. We're talking about coming to know the most beautiful person you could ever know, the most powerful person you could ever know, the most loving and gracious person you could ever know, the one who can feed you and feed you and feed you, the one who can cleanse you, the one who can forgive you, the one who can give you new life. If this church, or whatever church you belong to if you're a Christian, does not see evangelism as that, then you don't know what evangelism is. Evangelism is not about getting people to come to your church. It's about taking Christ to people so that they would look and go, yeah. So I'll finish, and I'm sorry for uh, the time, but I'll finish with one story. It, to me, illustrates this almost more than anything in my whole ministry. I was doing a book event in a bookstore in Dundee, and... Uh, it was, you know, microphone, it was a secular bookstore, and people came in, and I saw this woman come in, and she got her coffee and her Danish, and then she turned and looked, and she heard me talking about the Bible, and I could see the look of utter disgust on her face. 
So she got and she went and sat way over in the corner with her back to me. Now, when people are doing that, let me just tell you this, by the way, as a congregation. When you try to look as though you're not interested, it means you're listening. I'm very worried about those of you who are trying to look as though you are interested, because, <laughs> you know, maybe you're very good actors. But um, by the end of the night, she was down at the very front, sitting literally at my feet, and she said, I want to ask a question. I said, okay, this is the last question. And this is what she told me. She said, I came in here because I took my son to the Sea Cadets. I just wanted a break. I got a coffee and a Danish. And when I heard you start speaking, I thought, oh, no, no. What's religion doing in a bookshop? And then I started listening to some of what you're saying. She said, I've never heard anything like it. So I want to ask you one question. She said, how do you know that Jesus loves you? And she said, forget Jesus loving everybody. I'm not interested in that. How do you personally know that Jesus loves you? So there's a verse in the Bible, Galatians 3.20. I spoke about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I told her about the cross. And what struck me was her eyes were popping. And, and her mouth was like that. Afterwards, I, I said to the Christians who were there, you know, she got the cross better than most of us. She was amazed at it. We're so blasé about it. Even though we sing about how amazed we are. And she said this. She said, David, I'm not saying that I believe that. But if that is true, that is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. But that's the point. It is true. You will never, never in any religion or in any philosophy find anyone to beat Jesus. Seek him. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, your blessing on your word. Thank you for the beauty of Christ. And we pray that we would uh, seek you because you are seeking us. It's why you brought us here. Help us to know who you are and to love you and serve you and follow you. For we ask it in your name. Amen.